This episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. And this episode is sponsored by Prescott College's MBA in Sustainability Leadership Program. Get the tools you need to increase your earning potential while building a network of individuals that share your passion for making business better for the planet. Apply to the 100% online MBA in Sustainability Leadership at prescott.edu. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why the greening of sports hasn't been sidelined this year. A conversation with a 14-year-old wunderkind inventor. What switching to satellite offices could mean for sustainability what cricket sex pods have to do with surviving a natural disaster. It's a bug's life, this week on 350. It's August 14th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from an undisclosed location in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial <laughs> Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. How has your week been? My week has been great. I was actually watching two bucks uh, fight this morning on my front lawn. They were kind of like circling each other and being wary. I think it's a little early for uh, for the buck season, but... Um, All right. Animal, animal country here. Um, Circularity 20 is coming up uh, in two weeks, less than two weeks now, and uh, that's exciting. We've got uh, amazing lineup. I was looking through it. I hadn't, you know, really seen it in its entirety for a while because it just piecemealed, and it's it's really impressive. But also the speaker lineup. So encourage you to check that out. But this week we ran a package of stories uh, actually today on Friday on sports and the greening of sports, which is kind of cool. We don't run a lot of packages of, you know, we put together a bunch of stories on a similar topic, but I sort of, I sort of enjoyed seeing that. And, and, and it was pretty varied from looking at, you know, just sort of how this is hitting the mainstream and not being, as I said, sidelined or timed out uh, during this time. Um, but also one startup, uh, Lou Blaustein, who writes the Green Sports blog, one of our longtime regulars, does a profile of not just of sports venues and sports teams that are sort of doing the environmental green thing, but actually athletes as well. And and he profiles uh, Amy Keller, uh, uh, Ironman triathlete uh, who has a company that makes food products solely from fruits and vegetables that would otherwise have been unharvested. It's a candy, actually, a candy product. Mm-hmm. And she has a family mm-hmm. candy business, Spangler Candy Company. They, they they sell two billion dum-dum lollipops every year. That's the brand. <laughs> That's not the people who buy them. Um, and... Uh, 
but she's been a, a seven seven time Ironman triathlon con- competitor. Uh, she worked with Al Gore and uh, on COP twenty one that led to the Paris Climate Agreement, and she's you know got her sustainability cred. So I think he likes to bring those to the fore. And then there's a story about um, uh, about a new report that just came out, sort of looking at the opportunities uh, to build back better, as the meme goes. And we'll uh, have a clip uh, with uh, one of the authors of that report, Kristen Fulmer, a little bit later on in this episode. So sports, um, you know, Big Ten's not playing, Pac-12's not playing, uh, but uh, the greening of sports continues. Yeah. I'd, I'd also like to just take a moment, um, different topic, but to thank everyone who who participated in the the Women in Sustainability webcast this uh. week. It was truly, um, I'm just humbled by the, the turnout and also just the wisdom of the, the folks that we had on. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just thank you so much for, for caring and being there. And um, I encourage everyone to listen to the archive. You can you can, if you weren't there live, um, you can you can find it on the our wonderful webcast page. We've yeah. got lots of things there. Yeah. Yeah, that was epic. You had Ezzy Barsinus Barsinus uh, from Barsinus. Barsinus. Yep. Thank you from, from Anheuser Busch. Uh, Eunice Heath from Dow and Taylor Price, one of our uh, uh, erstwhile emerging leaders, now global manager of EHS and sustainability at a company called Aptar. What a great epic thing. And yes, we had, I think, the biggest turnout for any webcast in green business long in Tadri history. So congratulations yeah, yeah. on that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. But uh, let's get to some of the other stories we have this week in the Week in Review. So we talked about the switching to satellite offices, you know, this whole back to work thing that is starting to come together, but it's still for some companies months, if not a year off. But, you know, we're looking at how do we get back to some kind of office? Jesse Klein this week had a piece uh, on what switching to satellite offices could mean for sustainability, looking at uh, just, uh, you know, how to, you know, is it better to go to a bunch of smaller offices versus some big offices? Uh, and not just for the human health aspect, although that's paramount, but also for the energy and, you know, and, and water and other usage, commuting and other things. Uh, there's pluses and minuses. There's some advantages of bringing everyone together in one place from an efficiency point of view. Uh, but obviously there's problems as well. So a uh, really nice take on, on, on what, uh, how to think about that just purely through the lens of, of environmental sustainability. Yeah. And I think, well, you just point that through the lens of environmental sustainability, I think there's going to be this tension, right? As companies look more at the social aspects of what they're doing and, and how certain practices are sustainable. Clearly, Lots of companies are thinking about whether they want smaller hubs or people are calling them hub offices, um, satellite offices, but but letting people live where they want to, you know, work where they live and cutting that commuting picture out of the the, uh, the equation. And that's so important um, just for, you know, psychological health as well as environmental emissions. The transportation, um, it, you know, of commuting is just such a huge impact. But, um, you know, for all of those uh, teams and facilities groups that have worked so hard to negotiate contracts, to put in these these amazing systems in big corporate campuses, um, 
are not necessarily going to have the same sort of uh, economies of scale if you start looking at that in, in lots of different locations. So that's a challenge, I think, that um, as companies begin to think about whether they want to renew their leases or where they are or if they own if they own the campus, you know, how they want to take things forward, um, you know, whether they'll be able to fill that space, maybe they'll have to start letting, you know, actually, I mean, something that she doesn't even address. But if you think about it, um, if if the campuses aren't going to be filled, maybe people in that area, you know, other companies could start using those campuses. So if you think about Google, and all of its um, startups, right, that, that it works with, maybe you could think about those, those startups and those entrepreneurs taking advantage of that of that campus. Yeah. Um, so there could be a lot of creative things that come out of this there, um, if people do start yeah, they, know, they, moving they, people out. But There could be, but also there's liability issues. And if, if it's not safe for employees, why would it be safe for someone else's employees? So I'm not sure. Oh, well, I'm... Yeah, I'm not talking about right away. I'm just talking about in the long. I'm, but I'm certainly not talking in the short term. Yeah. Oh, creative reuse of space that's, yeah. that's underutilized. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But you know, the other yeah. the alternative, of course, is working at home, and that's not environmentally necessarily the best thing either, because you know we're we have the energy, water, lights, and everything else that they go on. It's sort of like. Um, Yes, the analogy is that carpooling versus driving your own car, you know, when you put everybody in a small space or even living in an apartment building versus living in a single family detached home, uh, you know, there's 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 a lot of uh, more efficiencies when you have, you know, in the, when you have doing things collectively than doing things uh, individually. And so, you know, this is just it's one of these issues that obviously human health uh, is is first and foremost, but we as we hopefully come out of this sometime in our in the foreseeable future we have to start looking at some of these other related issues um, but um, let's switch over to another issue uh, speaking of, of climate and carbon we had a piece this week by Adam Aston a longtime contributor who uh, is back with us it's great to see on uh, a carbon challenge that's bigger than aviation cars and shipping combined. And those are often referred to, at least aviation and shipping, as hard-to-abate segments that are uh, just challenging in a number of different ways. And this is about industrial heat. And you're probably saying, industrial heat. (laughs) (laughs) Wake me when this segment's over. It's actually pretty fascinating uh, because it's, you know, Mm -hmm. this is one of those sort of invisible uh but it's part of everything that that we manufacture almost and it in terms of uh heating and cooling minerals and and you know heating things to extreme temperatures and all kinds of alchemy where you need to uh create heat and uh kilns reactors chillers furnaces uh, all they're all powered by fossil fuels and uh and and a lot of them and so what do you substitute that with mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's a really interesting piece and talks about natural gas, renewable natural gas, which is, I know, controversial in terms of whether it's really an environmental benefit. Um, But I really like, you know, taking one of these aspects of of the business world that we don't think about, and it certainly isn't sexy, but uh, really important. Indeed. I think one of the the statistics of this story that really leapt out at me and thought, wow, I mean, I knew this is a problem, but if you think about it, um, the global demand for industrial heat has grown by 50%, 5-0 since 2000. And um, it's going to keep rising because these economies are growing and that means they have to build things and that means they need steel and cement and and all of the things that, that are required to, or at least currently required to construct. 
this is actually an issue that, that many of the organizations involved with RE100 or the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance uh, have been talking about because they the renewable electricity options have become um, much more widely spread and also much more cost effective. But what has not happened here for, if you will, the renewable thermal or this process heat is there hasn't really been a system for helping um, with the costs. And what's happening now um, is that there are some individuals and some organizations that are working on creating, if you will, like renewable energy credits, but for systems that handle this process heat. And that's what's going on here in this particular story, helping offset some of those costs. The capital needs, for example, for, for a small landfill project where you want to take that, that you want to collect that biogas and turn it into our renewable uh, natural gas and pipe it over somewhere that could cost anywhere from like starting 5 million to $25 million. So they're very expensive. And the financing structure, the, the credit structure hasn't existed. And that's what's starting to develop um, right now. The, the Renewable Thermal Collaborative is involved with this, um, but there's, there's some organizations that are trying to, to create a, a marketplace with you, Will, if you will. Um, there's some buyers such as uh, L'Oreal is involved with this. I know, um, I know people like Cargill and Mars are also thinking a lot about this this sort of thing. So I think that's what's we're hitting um, maybe a tipping point where we will get some of that happening. Yeah, uh, heaters, chillers, compressors, motors. Uh, these are the workhorses of of industrial world, and uh, we're just finally getting to how do we not just overlook them but bring them into the picture. Uh, lots more to come on that. So Joel, you had a real fun piece about a company called Terraform One, an architectural design firm that's got some really intriguing and uh, very out of there, <laughs> out of this world uh, ideas for upending cities and suburbs. So take us, take us there. Yeah, um, it's actually a nonprofit architectural and urban design research group based in Brooklyn at the Navy Yard in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I last week facilitated a conversation with uh, the co-founder and the executive director uh, of Terraform One uh, on behalf of Museum of Craft and Design in San Francisco, which housed an exhibition titled Survival Architecture and the Art of Resilience that brought together uh, architects and artists to artistically interpret solutions and prototypes for survival shelter in a climate-constrained world. And I'll note that my wife, Randy Rosenberg, who is the executive director of a nonprofit group called Artworks for Change, curated that exhibition, which has been traveling North America. So they had, as part of this, they had a, a virtual conversation with uh, Terraform One, which was part of the exhibition. And they had um, uh, something called the Cricket Shelter Farm, which we'll hear a little bit more about in a minute. Uh, but it's this innovative living space that uh, simultaneously addresses both sustainable food systems and modular compact architecture. But it, what was really fun was to hear from uh, Mitchell Joachim and Vivian Kwan. Uh, Mitch is the uh, co-founder and Vivian is the executive director of this uh, group of, of, of several hundred uh, affiliated designers, architects, uh, scientists, researchers, urban planners, and others. Some of the other ideas and things they're working on and prototyping, and in some cases, uh, you know, bringing into the world, uh, there is a kids seeding uh, thing, a, a seed <laughs> called the Gen 2 seed, which is made from mushrooms yeah. and the picture of, of, of Mitch's daughter uh, modeling this and 
you know, he, he Shades says... Shades of Alice in Wonderland there. <laughs> exactly. I don't know about you. Yeah, but... <laughs> yeah. Should I eat the chair or not? Mm, yeah. <laughs> but he says, yeah. it, there's a quote, he says, it's designed for kindergartners and uh, she's supposed to go home and tell mommy and daddy that it's okay to eat the chair. Uh, you know, sort of, there's this... There's this uh, serious fun aspect of this uh, that Mitch Duakam uh, brings to this. Uh, he's a Harvard and MIT educated architect, a Fulbright scholar, a TED fellow, uh, basically just sort of an average person. No, he's really quite accomplished. Um, they have uh, this monarch sanctuary. It's a prototype building facade that uh, is sort of a normal building inside, but at, around this is this uh, facade, an eight-story building that they're planning for the Nolita neighborhood in, in uh, New York that's north of Little Italy. That's um, also an iconic, uh, it's a pollinator uh, habitat for the iconic uh, monarch butterfly, which is considered endangered. Uh, so it's a vertical butterfly meadow built into the building. He's done this in partnership with BASF. They're also working with Intel and GE and others. I was just really, I mean, you know, in a in a time when we're just hit by one depressing and dreary topic after another, or just serious, let's get this done. This was this is brings the joy and the fun and the humanity back to the world of sustainability. It was such an uplifting conversation that I had to share it with the Green Biz mm -hmm. audience. You know, I'm curious, like how would a company potentially put some of these into practice? I mean, is, is the idea just to get them thinking creatively or could a, a company like try to maybe incorporate some of these ideas into a, a, a design? Sure, as I said, uh, BASF is one of the companies that uh, Terraform One has been working with. Uh, they have, uh, uh, you know, obviously in the plastics division, and they, they make all kinds of materials, not just plastics, but polymers for all sorts of applications. And so I think uh, they see this as uh, uh, not necessarily whether it's for a vertical butterfly meadow, but but some applications for some of the things they're looking at. I, I think there's lots more opportunities. It's probably an untapped one. Uh, they're also working a lot with cities, um, but they think they they would very much like to work with more companies. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there's a, a lot of opportunity here to uh, bring in a you know, group of out-of-the-box thinkers to really sort of look at solutions through through a new lens, if you will. Um, they're also very into the social aspects of this and how do you make sure these things are accessible, not just to the 1% or the elite few, uh, but to the masses. And, and there's a a bike sharing system that's that's actually cheaper than the New York City bike that they're working on. It solves the last mile problem. They're cargo bikes that can carry up to a few hundred pounds of, so that when you get to that last mile problem off the subway or the bus from the grocery store, but you still live, you know, eight or 20 blocks from where you need to go, you have the ability to do that. And that's particularly uh uh, of concern or of interest to people in low-income areas or disadvantaged communities where they don't can't necessarily jump in a cab or an Uber, um, or they may not those cabs and Ubers may not even be in their neighborhood. So uh, I think there's really uh, again sort of this serious fun aspect uh, that looks at the whole dimension of sustainability. Wanted to play clip. This is a segment with uh, Mitch Duakam, uh, the uh, co-founder, describing the cricket farm. Um, have a listen. This is the cricket shelter and farm. This was our client for some time, this guy and tens of thousands of others. And we designed a home for crickets 
so that humans can eat them. Why? Well, because we can't live off of that meat, cows, pigs, chicken, and lamb. It's just too much. The United Nations has mandated that Europe and the United States needs to consider eating insect-based protein. And insect protein is really good, especially what's in a powder form. Why would you do that? Well, it's 2,000 gallons uh, of, uh, to get one gram of protein from a cow of water. And for the same gram of protein, it's one gallon. So it's a massive difference when you use crickets versus cows. It's also 300 times less greenhouse gas emissions when you eat something uh, protein from crickets versus something like a cow. This shows you the land use difference. The one on the left is a rural condition where we have cattle, roughly 100 acres. Both are actually 100 acres of space. One is urban space, the other one's rural. And that 100 acres produces uh, the same amount of protein as the urban space using crickets. Those little pink areas, less than, I don't know, 3% of the necessary land can create the same amount of protein that you would need that the 100 acres does on the other side. So it's interesting when it comes to land use patterns, you can incorporate eating crickets and farming crickets inside our cities. So you go from pasture to plate very quickly. There's no carbon in shipping and storage. This is one of the farms that we have produced. There's 320 units. Each one produces a bag of chirp chips or cricket chips every six weeks. They die naturally inside our dialog gate system. Uh, they live happy lives and they reproduce and then they're harvested by people and, and uh, when they're dead and they're milled into a powder, which we think is really important because that powder makes bagels, bonbons, pasta, and whatever we feed them, that's really important because that determines the flavor of the, uh, ultimately the flour. The system is modular, so it can expand and be fit to any site. It also has uh, natural ventilation throughout it. There's, not so, there's almost no mechanicals used in this system to heat or cool it. The uh, spikes you see on the top is actually a form of wind cowl. So as vibrating columns of air move throughout the shelter, they get picked up through the top and they come out through these cowls that are then turned into an instrument or a wind horn or a cricket horn. And it magnifies the sounds of crickets chirping. So you can hear the whole colony when they're really happy, all the males performing what's called straddulation, moving their wings together. You can hear it from far away, all of them very happy and very excited looking for females to propagate. Uh, here's another view of it. They actually propagate inside these uh, cricket sex pods, which are designed for males and females to meet each other and to uh, uh, procreate and spread their genetics throughout the entire shelter. So the, the sex pod is a very unique kind of system, but it helps move them longitudinally throughout the entire system. Cricket sex pods. I bet you didn't think you'd hear that phrase when you woke up this morning, Heather. <laughs> Not two words I would normally put together, but I suppose for the uh, the benefit of cricket kind, we do need cricket sex. Yeah. So well, why not a sex pod? In this context where they're actually becoming food for the inhabitants of these shelters, uh, that uh, is a very convenient thing to do. And that's part of the charm of Terraform One. The projects and designs, as I said, are as fanciful as they are deadly serious. This is Shauna Rappaport, Executive Director of Verge with Green Biz Group. 
Over the past several years, youth leaders around the world have been rising up in unprecedented numbers to mobilize a generational movement, demanding action on the climate crisis and other pressing environmental and social challenges. But the action is not just happening on protest front lines. It's also underway in science and technology labs, where young innovators are taking the future into their own hands. Here to talk about harnessing the ingenuity of young people to solve our global challenges is Gitanjali Rao, an internationally recognized 14-year-old entrepreneur. Welcome, Anjali. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's start with your own passion for science, technology, and innovation. Talk a little bit about some of the inventions that you're most proud of. For sure. So one of my biggest passions for the longest time has been using science and technology to solve real world problems. So some of the things that I'm working on currently is first my device called Tethys, which helps to detect lead in drinking water faster and cheaper than current methods out there today. And it's based on carbon nanotube sensor technology. And um, that one currently I'm working on partnering with a variety of different organizations to help me with skill testing and uh, making it into a product that people can use. Um, I'm also currently working on a device called Epioni, which helps to diagnose prescription opioid addiction at an early stage. And the biggest thing that I'm working on currently is a service called Kindly, um, which escaped a Greek name, um, which is able to detect and prevent cyberbullying at an early stage based on the latest developments in artificial intelligence technology and natural language processing and understanding. So, as you can see, there are tons and tons and tons of things that I'm interested in. Um, and I like to do a little bit of everything. So currently, I'm working on dipping my toes into all the different fields. That's awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the technology piece, because I know you're super passionate about the power of technology to solve our big problems. What are some of the technologies that, that you're most excited about and that you think really have some of the greatest potential? I love talking about technology in every way. I think that some of them with the biggest potential is definitely things that we're starting to look into the world of, but I think we could do even more of it. Like, let's say wireless technology, like 5G technology is already here. And while it does mean stuff like better video and faster internet when we're on Zoom calls, it's also much, much more than that, which I like to look at. Um, it can lead to things like surgeries being performed remotely or people being in video conferences as holograms. Like the the possibilities are limitless with the things in 5G and the things that 5G is bringing to us. I can't wait for the day where I get to be a hologram in school. That sounds amazing. Um, another one that I'm really, really looking at is uh, the idea of like machine learning. And that's kind of what Kindly was based off of as well. Um, I hope to make it a machine learning algorithm so it's able to you know, learn from mistakes it makes. But the idea of machine learning allows robots and things like even cars and other machines to think and decide like humans and things that require human capacity and human experience to determine the best options can now be performed by a robot at your house, which I think is so fascinating. I want to talk now about one of your other greatest passions, which is the, the power of young people. What is the unique contribution from your perspective that young people can make to solving today's 
greatest social and environmental challenges. So I like to say that thinking outside the box is a term that we like to commonly use, but what does it actually mean? Thinking outside the box comes a lot out of students. We don't have a box that we're surrounded around. Um, as we start to get older and or, old, older, we start to realize, oh, this can't be done, or this sounds dumb because there's all these restrictions coming in the way. But as a younger age, we kind of think of everything possible. And I think that's the beauty of innovating and inventing is we're stretching that box. We're making it seem like everything is possible. And I think that's what's required in you know, today's world, today's organizations. Everyone needs to be able to think outside the box, not only to harness these technology solutions, but also you know, just something as simple as how can we make our office space more collaborative? Anything can be stretched and anything can be continued to be expanded upon. So I think that's really where youth play in to provide a new perspective, a new role in something that adults usually dominate. That is a perfect transition into my final question for you, which is an opportunity to kind of make a call to action of the Green Biz community, if you will specifically of, of companies, and especially as it relates to harnessing this ingenuity and energy of young people, what, what would be your call to action? What would you like to see happen? I would like to see companies and individuals start to you know, reach out to youth out there instead of the other way around. I spend a lot of time looking, at, uh, looking for professionals or experts to you know, do tests in their lab or requ request guidance from them. What if we switch those roles? What if adults start to look for students to help, you know, improve what, what their company is like or improve their own being? So I request all of you out there to seek a mentee and mentor them in the areas that they are passionate about, no matter what it is, no matter if you think you're qualified in that or not. Take that next step. Find someone. It can be your neighbor. It can be your friends, 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 friend. It can be anyone. Just find someone who you think you can make an impact with. And it sounds like the, the vision and spirit behind that is the mutually beneficial opportunities within it, right? It isn't just about mentoring young people for the sake of their own growth and development, but to your point about out-of-the-box thinking and, and, and all of the creativity that young people have to bring to whatever issues companies are working to solve, um, there's such an opportunity for mutual benefit as well. Absolutely. I definitely think that's a huge role in everything. Well, we can't wait to feature you on the Verge stage, virtual stage, this October as a keynote speaker at Verge 20. Anjali Rao is a 14-year-old innovator and winner of the Discovery Education 3M Young Scientist Challenge. Thank you so much, Anjali. Thank you for having me. As we said earlier this week, we published a package of stories about the greening of sport. And while most professional sports have been sidelined by the pandemic, that isn't true for the global efforts to reduce the environmental impact of stadiums, arenas, and other venues. One recent report titled The Sustainable Sports Agenda, Opportunities for the Sports Industry to Build Back Better, offered a detailed look of what the world of professional sports can do. And here to talk about the report is one of its authors, Kristen Fulmer, CEO and founder of Reciproc, a sustainable sports change agency. 
Hi, Kristen. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Sure. Well, we wrote an article, co-authored an article about the report on the pages of Green Biz, but did the sort of the main takeaways that you think are important to know? Yeah, I mean, I think we started out with highlighting in our minds all of these risks that we saw uh, to the progress that was made in sustainability and in sustainable sport, uh, you know, reusable cup programs and basically, you know, opportunities to reduce waste, engage with fans and, um, you know, even promote alternative transportation. And, you know, maybe it was more me, <laughs> the pessimist starting out as, as risks um, and, and the team really got together and brainstormed how those can actually be opportunities. Uh, and so we, we broke those out into a few sections highlighting how sports can actually partner with alternative transportations to integrate let's say, uh, into your tickets, uh, because we'll now all be using digital tickets to reduce the transfer of materials. Uh, maybe where we can reuse PPE or use touchless devices instead of reusing dispose or using disposable and, you know, identifying upfront areas where people might really crave, you know, more packaging or think they need additional, uh, wrappers, let's say, um, where we can actually, you know, think ahead and, and how do we how do we get ahead of that? And there's some really great innovations happening that are highlighted in the report. Yeah, lots of good stuff. But so talk a little bit about what is happening right now during the pandemic. Sports seems to have a, t a timeout. Uh, what about all these efforts that you and a lot of others are working on? Yeah, I mean, I think what was so exciting at first was the momentum of just teams and even individual athletes just reacting to the crisis at hand. And, and back in March, it really felt like a momentary crisis. And so many athletes, uh, even individuals, uh, donated time and, and resources and what they could. And um, I think, you know, over time, as we're all trying to figure out how long this actually is, that's turning into kind of continuous impactful work in communities. Uh, so now, you know, we're realizing that this is more long term and, and maybe there's opportunities to renovate stadiums or reuse the stadiums for different uses. I know we've seen drive-in movie theaters, um, even, you know, blood drives and, and things kind of reacting uh, to the continued crisis. And, and really, you know, just opportunities to, you know, build back better, as, as the report says, and, and as we often hear, to really, you know, just engage with the community uh, and use sports as that platform. Um, but do good uh, through partnerships and fans directly. I think one of the things they're talking about is using arenas and stadiums for COVID testing sites, uh, which makes sense because you've got multiple entrances and exits and lots of space. And uh, you could probably, if we get to that mass testing phase, uh, that would be the great place to do it. There's one in almost every major city. Exactly. They're centrally located. They're accessible. Uh, everyone knows where they are. And there are opportunities to leverage those partnerships um, from the sports side. They have all of these partnerships with brands and they're trying to, you know, kind of still bring value to them when sports isn't happening. And that's a great way to do that and, and offer things to the community through the fan base and the, the larger community where they're present. When you look at all of the opportunities to build back better that you've identified, is there one or two things that you Everyone should be doing it. In, in, when I talk about everyone, the teams, the venues, the, those in professional sports should be doing that. They're not yet. I guess I'm sort of wondering what's the, the proverbial low hanging fruit here? 
Yeah, I think right now what I see is the low-hanging fruit, if there is any in this this crazy world of unknowns, is really trying to better partner with, you know, bring two organizations together and partner. I know you recently had a podcast about collaboration and, you know, kind of business-to-business collaboration. And I, and I just feel like there's so much more that could be maximized in, in partnerships between uh, brands uh, that sponsor sports teams, the teams themselves, and the individual players who are kind of advocates for it. Um, and and that feels like uh, an area where there's, you know, there's no reason not to do it because of money. There's a lot of money there. There's time right now. Um, so that can't be an excuse to, to find ways to partner. Um, and right now everybody's virtual, so it's pretty easy to find new ways to engage um, social media and, and otherwise. And so, um, I, I see partnerships as really, uh, you know, what sports can be doing better because traditionally it was really just, there's a logo on a sign next to the field. And, and there's so many more, uh, iterations of, of that partnership that can happen, um, for the better. Tell me a little bit about the work that uh, you do at Recivic. Yeah. So, working on a few different things right now, mostly focused on really just trying to make sure that sustainability is integrated into the reopening, uh, especially in sports where there are moments where, you know, we're pulling back green cleaning efforts or we are trying to do things to help fans feel confident to come back that could be detrimental to the waste stream. So I'm working with uh, a lot of different sports organizations and even real estate uh, organizations as a whole to help them find ways to reopen confidently, um, both for their own staff, for their fans and visitors, uh, but also integrating sustainability maybe more subtly into that, <laughs> but using the, the kind of uh, amplification of the need for the healthy buildings movement to really you know, bring this, this topic to a forefront and, and kind of leverage the urgency of healthy buildings to also integrate uh, waste reduction, uh, new air quality standards, um, as kind of the, you know, moment to make this, uh, a, a true movement instead of just a moment or a quick response that then goes away. Yeah, this isn't going away anytime soon. And, uh, thanks for keeping that, that, uh, good work going. Kristen Fulmer is CEO and founder of Reciproc, a sustainable sports change agency and co-author of the report, The Sustainable Sports Agenda, Opportunities for the Sports Industry to Build Back Better. Thanks so much, Christy. Thanks so much for having me. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our six free e-newsletters. You can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. We always welcome your comments, your questions, your tips, your complaints, whatever you have. Just email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit 
westrock.com. And this episode is sponsored by Prescott College's MBA in Sustainability Leadership Program. Get the tools you need to increase your earning potential while building a network of individuals that share your passion for making business better for the planet. Apply to the 100% online MBA in Sustainability Leadership at prescott.edu.